Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Steve Asawa provides us with an introduction and overview of the Gospel of Mark. And now, here's Steve. Good morning. Thanks to our opening team just for setting the stage and turning our hearts and our minds to the passage before us, reminding ourselves, reminding each of us about who we are and the servant king who came down and gave his life for us. We're starting a new series on the gospel according to Mark this morning. And I'm going to provide an, an introduction and an overview of the Gospel. It's the shortest of the Gospels and was likely the first one that was written. Now, the first three Gospels in our Bible, namely Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are sometimes referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. And there's a fair bit of overlap in the material that's presented in them. The Gospels were, however, with different audiences and therefore some different, slightly different objectives in mind. The Easton's Bible Dictionary notes that this gospel account declared Jesus to be a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And as we work our way through this gospel over the next so many weeks, I trust that you'll see that Jesus is this and more so. Jesus isn't just some historical figure. He's alive and he wants a relationship with each of us. So this morning I'm going to touch on some of the background to the gospel, who wrote it, why was it written, when, um, what are some of the characteristics and highlights of this gospel, and what does it mean for us now. Let's just open with a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we just pause and just marvel that the God who created and sustains the heaven and earth created ones like us and loved us so much that you sent your Son on our behalf. Thank you, Father, for your Son, for your Spirit, and we thank you for your Word. And I just pray that as we open it up again this morning, you just give me the, the words that you want me to speak, and that you would just open our hearts and our minds to what you would have us learn and apply to our lives, that you may receive the honor and glory. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When you want to help people understand something, it's important that they feel comfortable enough to ask questions, isn't it? Can you show me that again? Why did you do it that way? When you're, if you want to show somebody or teach somebody something, there really is no such thing as a stupid question, is there? So says the preacher who starts off with this question. Who wrote the gospel according to Mark? Well, no one's daring to take, get that one wrong. If your answer is Mark, you're right. Give yourself a pat on the back. Now, I should note, you know, this is a bit of a catch to this one. The gospel itself doesn't include any details on who the writer is. And interestingly enough, the title in the Gospel, according to Mark, is said to have been added by a scribe sometime before A.D. 125. 
So a few years after it was actually penned. However, the author is widely accepted to be John Mark, John being Hebrew, Mark being Latin. And he was the, he was the one who the Apostle Peter referred to as his son in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. And as early as A.D. 110, Papias quoted the testimony of one called John the Elder, who named Mark as the author. And among other things, Papias noted that Mark accompanied the Apostle Peter and he heard his preaching. He wrote down accurately all that Peter remembered of Jesus' words and works, but not necessarily in order. He was Peter's interpreter, probably meaning that he explained Peter's teaching by writing it down rather than translating his Aramaic into Greek or Latin. And he says that his account is wholly reliable. And in addition to Peter's teachings, we know that Mark also would have had access to early traditions and writings that were there at the time. Now, Mark was a Jewish Christian, and he came from a fairly well-to-do family. His mother, Mary, was a friend of the apostles, and they sometimes gathered at her house. We know, for example, that when the Christians prayed for Peter's release from prison, after Herod had put him in prison, and this is after he had James, the brother of John, executed, that's where they prayed there, and that's where Peter went after he was released. It's also possible that the Last Supper took place at Mary's house. Mark's cousin Barnabas ministered with the Apostle Paul. Mark and Paul themselves had a temporary falling out, but later they reconciled and traveled together. So who was it written for and why? I should note, um, before I I slip and I use that term, um, this, the Gospel according to Mark, like all the other ones, that according to Matthew, Luke, and John, are really Jesus' gospel, aren't they? It's the story is the good news of Jesus. It's not the good news about Mark. So, in effect, we have the gospel according to Mark. Um, so, if I slip and I say Mark's gospel, though, bear with me. Now, this gospel was written with a Roman audience in mind. It was likely written from Rome. It would have been written sometime between the late 50s A.D. and sometime before 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. Now, an earlier date seems likely as it would coincide with the earlier part of Nero's reign, the Emperor Nero's reign, which was around 54 to 68. And it fits well with the tradition that Peter and Paul would have been alive at at the time this gospel was written. And would have been written, uh, I think most many believe, prior to the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. The Gospel is written to remind the Christians of the good news and to let them hear it again during a really challenging period in their time. The environment was hostile. No getting around it. Christians were being persecuted big time in those days. It's important to note that It was important that they appreciated the fact that the Son of God gave his life for them. And that meant what it meant to be a disciple or a follower 
of Jesus. Jesus not only died, but he rose again. And he said that he would return one day. It was important that they be alert. What are some of the things that we see or don't see in this gospel? Mark's recording of the gospel is shorter than the others. A primary, primarily Roman audience wouldn't have cared about all the details about Jesus' lineage, his birth, or painstaking details regarding some of his ministry. It reflects the saying that actions speak louder than words. This gospel includes 18 miracles, four of Jesus' parables, and one of his discourses. So more of the action stuff, less of the talking stuff. Mark recorded what Jesus said and noted people's reactions. Now the gospel moves quite quickly. The word euthos, which means immediately or straightway, is found numerous times in it. For example, in chapter 1, verses 16 to 22, we read, As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting an net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and began to teach. So Mark was familiar with the geography of Palestine. He knew Aramaic, which was the commonly used language in Palestine. For example, he records Jesus saying, Talithakum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was crying out, Abba, another Aramaic word. When Jesus cried out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, it was Aramaic. Mark doesn't talk about the Jewish law in the Gospel, but he does interpret words and our Jewish customs that a Gentile audience might not understand. For example, the Pharisees challenged Jesus because his disciples were eating with unholy hands, that is, unwashed, which Mark explains in chapter 7. He also uses certain Latin words not found in any of the Gospels, such as the centurion on the cross. Thankfully, one doesn't have to be a Roman or Italian to understand and apply what Mark wrote. If it's true that you are what you eat, I must be part Italian, because I really like Italian food. Actually, that would make me a mix of a whole bunch of nationalities. As an aside, if eating were a spiritual gift, I'd have it. We won't focus on gluttony this morning, though. I found a nice quick overview of this gospel done to the Bible Project. And it noted that the gospel is like a drama divided into three acts or sections. The first takes place in Galilee, where people are blown away, wondering, who is this Jesus guy? So There, 
The third takes place in Jerusalem, in, in near Jerusalem. And it's here that we see Jesus is the Messianic King. And the second act is on the way from Galilee over to Jerusalem, where Jesus is helping his disciples understand who he is, why he came, and what it means to be his followers. I'm going to use these three sections and add some more detail. So our gospel starts like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now we know that the gospel is the good news. That Christ is the anointed one or the Messiah. In those days, kings and priests would be anointed. So for another way of reading it, the New Living Translation calls it, says, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Those who hadn't heard about Jesus before hearing the gospel wouldn't have grasped the significance of Jesus being referred to as the Son of God. The notion of a, a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, wasn't even a consideration for them. This is the only time that Mark himself identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The rest of the time, he just points out what's said and done and lets others come to that conclusion. So this first section uh, in Galilee goes from the beginning of the gospel to about uh, chapter 8, somewhere around verse 20, 26. And he starts off with Mark quoting Malachi and Isaiah. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Malachi. Isaiah 43. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And he tells about Jesus' baptism, after which Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. He records the fact that Jesus goes to the region of Galilee where he chooses his disciples. The scribes accuse him of casting out demons by the ruler of demons. Hmm. He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. And then Jesus sets him straight on that point. He performs miraculous healings. He drives out an impure spirit. He brings a girl back to life. He feeds the multitudes and he even walks on water. Now, Jesus didn't come down from heaven simply to feed and to heal people. He silenced those demons he encountered. He told people not to say anything about the miracles that he did. He spoke to the crowd in parables, but he only explained them to his disciples. Now, in this first part, Jesus doesn't assert that he's the Messiah, nor does he accept others saying that in this first section. So this has been referred to as the messianic secret. Who is this man? In the second act, we see Jesus interacting with his disciples as they move from Galilee over to Jerusalem. And this section starts with Peter's confession of Christ, starting in chapter 8, verse 27. And goes through to the end of chapter 10. So reading from 8, 27 to 30. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. 
And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about them. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Although Peter said the right words, it's clear from the Bible that he really didn't grasp the significance of what he was saying. Jesus told the crowd and his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus later took Peter, James, and John up onto a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. On the way down, he told them about he told them what they not to say anything about what they sorry he told them not to say anything about what they saw until he rose from the dead. Again, they weren't sure what this really meant. Jesus later orders an evil spirit to leave a boy, and he knows that. All things are possible with God. Then Jesus tells his disciples a second time that the Son of Man will be handed over to men, killed, and will rise three days later. Jesus teaches how important it is not to cause others to sin and knows that it's better to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, with a missing body part than to be thrown into hell, into the unquenchable fire. He teaches about divorce the importance of receiving little children, and the problem of wealth. He said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now I'm sure you parents, any who are parents out there, who have been around uh, the younger people a lot, uh, some, some of us older kids too, I'm sure we're all thankful that our kids are doing this noble thing by helping us enter the kingdom of God by keeping our wealth in check. How hard it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. And they're helping us enter it. Jesus noted that we would receive so much more along with persecutions than what we might give up for his sake. The final reward includes eternal life. As they're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus tells his disciples he's going to be killed and rise from the dead a third time. And then for some reason, James and John asked Jesus if they could sit next to him in his glory. One on one side, one on the other. The other is not surprisingly a little ticked off. And Jesus notes, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's one of the, the main things in this, this gospel, isn't it? That Jesus came as the suffering servant. Not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, including all of us. 
The third act or section begins with Jesus and disciples approaching Jerusalem. We know this is Palm Sunday. It's just hard to believe. It's only three weeks away. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on the colt. And many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Save. or Save now. Here comes that victorious Messiah they've been waiting for. Then Jesus enters the temple area and turns over the tables of the money changers and the seats of those selling doves. He prevented people from carrying merchandise through the temple grounds. He was, in effect, taking control over the sacrifices. And he did that by essentially closing down the market. The chief priests and scribes were livid. But they were also afraid of Jesus because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus stumped them when he, they asked him from what authority he had to do and say these things. And whenever they tried, Jesus walked right through the traps of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And again, people were amazed at his responses and at his teaching. Jesus also spoke about the things to come. He indicated the temple would be destroyed, his disciples would be arrested, and hated because of his name. A time of tribulation was coming, after which then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And Jesus was at the home of Simon the leper when Mary poured a vial of very expensive perfume on him. Jesus noted that she was anointing his burial beforehand for burial. The disciples gathered together for the Passover meal, which was which reminded them of how God freed his people from the bonds of slavery in Egypt. When they're eating, he took some bread, and after a, rest, after a blessing, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, Take, this is my body. And when they had, he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Later, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Remember, Abba was one of those Aramaic words that Mark used. Immediately, remember that word? Immediately, Judas came with a crowd to arrest Jesus. He was tried, condemned by the high priest, and brought before Pilate, who had Jesus flogged and crucified, just to appease the crowds. When he was crucified... At that ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, 
which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus paid the price for the sins of the world, and yet he himself was without sin. He was without blemish. He was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus dies and is buried in a tomb. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome came to anoint Jesus' body. The stone at the entrance of the tomb had been rolled away, though, and a young man tells the women that he has risen and go tell his disciples and Peter. The women are afraid and don't say anything to anyone. Now, if you've been reading this lately or even before in this gospel, you may have noticed something a little odd and a little problematic at the end of this gospel. At the end of the gospel, there are two, possibly three different endings. And the short ending, found in some versions, for example, in the New American Standard, is like a footnote. It says, And they promptly reported all these, things, these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out, sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. So that's the, the short ending. A few late manuscripts in some of the ancient versions include this, this section, usually after paragraph, or sorry, after verse 8. The longer version is not found in some of the earlier manuscripts, earliest manuscripts, but it's there in the later ones. It includes verses 9 to 20, in which the disciples refused to believe when told that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Then later they were commissioned to go and preach the gospel. I think some manuscripts have the gospel actually ending at the end of verse 8, where the women run away and don't tell anyone. That would seem pretty abrupt, though. So what does all this mean for us? Mark shows how Jesus was a suffering servant who told his followers what it meant to be a disciple or follower. We noted that the gospel starts out this way, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God the Father confirmed this twice. When Jesus was baptized, a voice came out of the heavens. It said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. When Jesus died, the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last and said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Mark notes that even demons knew who Jesus, that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus himself noted he was God's Son on occasion. For example, he said, not even the Son knows the time or when he's calling on his father, when he's calling on Abbot in Gethsemane, when he's responding to Pilate. Jesus' power was demonstrated in dealing with demons when he healed people, 
when he calmed the winds and the waves, when he raised a girl from the dead. So the kingdom of God was ushered in through the person of Jesus, the Son of God. He came to earth and ruled over all creation. Good news indeed, right? Jesus preferred to use the term son of man when referring to himself. If I counted correctly, he used this term 13 times when speaking about himself in this gospel. And it fits well with his position as the Christ, the Messiah. Instead of a conquering military ruler, Jesus came as the suffering servant Isaiah prophesied about. As he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus died so that we could be set free. He set the pattern for his disciples to follow and noted again that they would be rewarded for anything they gave up for his sake. There would, however, be persecution, but in the age to come, eternal life. People's reactions to Jesus were mixed. Some believed and followed, some weren't sure, and some outright rejected him. I would pray that everyone here is in that first group, those who believe and follow. And would be happy to talk to anyone if they want to to speak further on that, that question. The kingdom of God isn't just about the future when those who believe will be in heaven with Jesus. We should be mindful of his grace and his leading in our lives every day. If Jesus is Lord, he has to be Lord of all aspects of our lives. As he said, we have to take up our cross and follow him. Our actions should reflect our beliefs. We should be willing to share the gospel and serve the Lord and others. As we sang earlier, so let us learn how to serve and in our lives enthrone him. Each other's needs to prefer. Why? For it is Christ we're serving. I would suggest that serving is an act of worship when it's done for the Lord, as opposed to getting attention for ourselves. Each of us has gifts skills, talents that we can put to good use for God's glory. For example, there's no shortage of work to be done inside and outside the confines of the church. We share information on our website. People are needed to run the services both at the front, at the back. Uh, There's children's ministries going on out in the nursery, in the Sunday school. Uh, There's a kids club. Grief share meetings, etc., etc., and all supported by prayer. We have a nice, clean building that meets regulated standards. Someone likely greeted you when you came in. You may have had a cup of coffee, and so on. Not so much now, but often there's snow to shovel in the winter. In the summer, there's gardens to be tended, grass to be cut. I'm sure those involved in any of these and other things would appreciate more help. I should note, uh, there's a, a partial list of contacts if you're interested in helping out in any of those things in the, um, in the inside of the uh, church directory.
And if there's something that you're interested in that you don't see, let me know and I'm sure we can put you in touch with the right person. The opportunity to serve can also involve helping someone beyond the church. It may be as simple as spending time with somebody, being a listening ear, praying with them, mentoring them, etc. Or helping them with some chores, maybe helping somebody put food on the table. Sometimes the best things we can do for others are those things that only we know about and that the Lord knows about. And I'm sure you can think of a whole myriad of other ways that you can serve the Lord as well. So again, the people's reactions were mixed. Some followed and believed. Some were unsure. Some rejected. Hopefully, I trust and I pray that all here are going to follow and believe. And as believers, our actions have to reflect our words. We need to follow the example of Jesus, who was the suffering servant who came not to be served, but to serve. And so we too should be serving others and serving the Lord. I'll ask Phil if he'll then close our service in prayer. Let's just close in prayer, shall we? Dear God, our Father, we thank you for introducing us to yourself and to your Son, to the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the opportunity to know about you through your word and to be, have your word enjoined in our hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the life that you offer to us, that eternal life that begins with believing in you and coming to your presence to accept you as Lord and Savior. And also we are thrilled with the the life that you bring now to us as we're part of your family, your sons and daughters, your disciples, your brothers, your sisters, all that you have declared to us that are ours in Christ. And we've been singing about the hope that lies before us, a hope that is unique to those who know Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Christian hope, a hope that is eternal, a hope that is sure, a hope that is founded in the promises of you, our God, yourself. We just commit ourselves to you afresh as we seek to live for you, serve you, and to bring others to a saving knowledge of yourself. And we just pray all this and thanking you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.